Hello, hello. It's another beautiful day and Elliot and I are back in the studio for our next episode of SJ Explain. What's up? What's up? Good to have you all back with us. So let's jump right into it. Today we're going to be talking about the Maria Hertog riots. And for everyone who's gone through the Singapore public education system, you would know that these riots are kind of the case study that they introduced to you to talk about the need for religious sensitivity and you know the need for multi-religious harmony the point still stands right religious sensitivity is very important and this is a great case study but there's actually a lot more to maria hertog's story that is not captured in the case study and i thought today would be a great way to talk it through and and learn more about it elliot you you've learned about maria hertog before right oh yeah dude what i found interesting is that i think you have more pages of of show notes than were found in my social studies textbook. <laughs> so this is pretty dense and I'm looking forward to learning because everything that I remember about the Maria Hurtog riots was basically uh, riot is bad and we have to be careful. And after reading through the show notes, Roving, I must say that uh, I am a little bit shocked with uh, what has happened and you know the amount of details that has gone into uh, this story, some of which perhaps is glossed over within like textbooks and whatnot uh, there's a lot of generalization and a lot of yeah you know a bridging that happens in, correct, correct. in the social studies textbook but this is really bringing out the full nuance and bringing out you know some of the ambiguity in and how people were conveying their perspectives right and that that leads a lot to where we get to where the riots happened and people's lives were affected so let's talk about the main character right so, Huberdina Maria Hertog, that's her full name, was born on 24th March 1937 to a Dutch Catholic family living in Chamal near Bandung, Java, then a part of the Dutch East Indies, which is also now known as Indonesia. So, that's, that's really the context. It's a Dutch family, and the reason for this is because the Dutch had a huge influence in Indonesia. Her natal father, or basically her birth father, Adrianus Petrus Hertog, came to Java in the 1920s as a sergeant in the Royal Netherlands East Indies Armies. And in the early 1930s, he married Adeline Hunter, a Eurasian of Scottish Javanese descent brought up in Java. So these are really people who, you know, built a lot of their lives in the Dutch East Indies. Maria herself was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church of St. Ignatius on 10th April by a Catholic priest. So she is, you know, full Catholic at this point. Now, when World War II broke out, Adrianus Hertog, the father, as a sergeant in the Dutch army, was captured by the Imperial Japanese Army and sent to a prisoner of war camp in Japan, where he was kept until 1945. Her mother, Adeline Hertog, stayed with her mother, so, you know, basically Maria's grandmother, nor Louise, and her five children, among whom Maria was a third and youngest daughter. On 29 December 1942, Mrs. Hertog gave birth to a sixth child, a boy, and then three days later, Maria went to stay with Amina Binte Muhammad, a 42-year-old woman from Kamaman, Terengganu, Malaya, which is now known as Malaysia. Amina Binte Muhammad was a close friend of Norlouis. So, you know, that's the context of, of, of how all of this starts when essentially... Adeline Hertog gives birth to her sixth child. There's too much kids in the in the house. They kind of want to like distribute resources a bit. And so Nor Louise, who is a friend of Amina, basically goes to Amina and says, uh, oh, would you mind taking care of my grandkid for a bit? And Amina says, sure, happy to. 
And then that's kind of where things get a bit fuzzy. In order to go into a bit of like the story and the trial, I guess we'll kind of like present like different points of view. So first and foremost, maybe I'll share a little bit about what Adeline, her talks, like version of events were. Okay. So um, according to her, in a testimony she gave as evidence before the court hearing in November 1950, um, she was persuaded by her mother, Nor Louise, uh, after the birth of a sixth child to allow Maria to go and stay with Amina in Bandung for like just three or four days. Uh, consequently, Amina arrived on 1st January 1943 to fetch Maria. Uh, when the child was not returned, right, Mrs. Hertog borrowed a bicycle on 6th January and set to retrieve her. Uh, she claimed that she was stopped by a Japanese sentry on the outskirts of Bandung as she did not possess a pass and was therefore interned. From an internment camp, she smuggled a letter to her mom, requesting for her children to be sent to her. This, uh, nor Louise did, but Maria was not among them. So all the other five children except Maria. Uh, so Mrs. Hertog asked her mother to fetch Maria from Amina. Uh, her mother later wrote and told her that Amina wanted to keep Maria for two more days, after which she herself would bring the child to the camp. Uh, however, this did not materialize, and Mrs. Hertog did not see Maria through her internment. After her release, she could neither uh, find uh, Maria nor Amina. It's a roller coaster of, of a ride. And you have to imagine as a mother, right, not knowing where your daughter is and not knowing where the person who your daughter is with is. This is the 1940s, man. Like, only telegrams. And I don't even mean the, I don't mean the messaging app, dude. It's just like pure letters. And the other backdrop about this is that it's happening during World War II, the Japanese occupation. There's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of families are getting displaced. So Maria Hertog, uh, unfortunately, is not the only one, right? So there's a lot of stories during this time of families getting displaced and separated. And we need to remember that this is one of many stories, but very prominent because of the riots that happened later on. So, so let's uh, let's look at it from Amina's perspective, right? So, Elliot, you just shared Adeline's perspective. From Amina's perspective, upon arriving with Amina, Maria was given the name Nadra Binte Marov, and for unknown reasons, her new family moved to Jakarta for a period before moving back to Bandung, where Amina worked for the Japanese military police as an interpreter until the end of the war. In 1947, fearing harm upon the family during the Indonesian National Revolution because Maria was a pute, which is basically their term for a white child. Wait, pute is like sugar, right? Or something like that. It's like how we call uh, white people here Angmaw, right? Like red hair. Yeah, right, right. We're not actually referring to them. We're referring to a characteristic. And so Amina moved back to her hometown of Kampong Bangal in Kamaman Terengganu. And by this time, Maria was the same as any other Malay Muslim girl of her age. She spoke only Malay, wore Malay clothes, and practiced her religion devoutly. Later on, during the court case, we'll find out that in Amina's mind, Maria was basically an adopted child of hers, right? That Noor Louise basically asked Amina to adopt a kid. And so that kind of explains why all of this happened. So in 1945, with the end of World War II, um, the dad, Sergeant Hertog, was released and returned to Java, where he reunited with his wife, uh, Adeline. The couple said that they inquired about Maria, but could find neither her nor Amina. Then uh, they returned to the Netherlands after requesting the Dutch authorities in Java and Singapore to try to trace the child. Um, investigations were then made by the Red Cross Society, uh, the Indonesian Repatriation uh, Service, the Royal Netherlands Army, and local police. 
And finally, right, four years later, in September 1949, Amina and Maria were traced to the kampong in which they were living. And negotiations were open to retrieve Maria in early 1950. Even the Dutch consulate offered like 500 bucks to make up for Amina's expenses and bring up the girl for eight years. It was a lot of money back then, 500 bucks. Doesn't sound like a lot now, but 500 was quite a uh, sum. Uh, Amina rejected the offer and refused to give up her foster daughter. Nonetheless, she was persuaded to travel with Maria to Singapore in April to discuss the issue with the Dutch consul general. However, Amina could not be persuaded. Now, in that same year, in 22nd April 1950, Jacob Vandegaag, the acting Dutch Consul General in Singapore, applied to the High Council of the Colony of Singapore for an order under the Guardianship of Infants Ordinance. Uh, the then Chief Justice heard the request the same day and approved the application ex parte. This is all just about trying to get them in the same space to kind of like uh, talk things through. And it also explains how it came to Singapore. Right, because all of this was so far in Java, yeah. So basically, it's an appeal to Dutch authorities uh, for, uh, in a way, negotiating and setting the legal stage uh, for all this to take place. Uh, the next day, so 23rd April 1950, an officer from the department served the order on Amina and took Maria away. After a routine medical examination at Middle Road Hospital, she was admitted to the Girls' Homecraft Centre at York Hill. Um, Maria had made it clear that she wanted to stay with Amina. So this is the child speaking, right? And did not want to be returned to her natal parents. Amina contended that Adeline had given Maria over to her willingly. And this was supported by testimony of Sowaldi Hunter, Adeline's older brother, who bore witness to the adoption. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, however, after a 15-minute hearing on 19th of May, the High Court ruled that the custody of Maria be granted to the Hatoks. Now, you can see why this is complicated, right? The, the authorities in this sense involve a Dutch, the Dutch consul general. Then there might be some form of bias going on. Um, and this is where it's evident. Um, as Amina and Maria exited the court via the back door, a car from the consulate was waiting to take Maria away. Maria refused to enter the car and clung onto Amina, both shouting in Malay that they would kill themselves rather than be separated. You know what's what's interesting is that there is a picture of that in the social science textbook when we were kids. Mm -hmm. it's the mm -hmm. struggle, that is a very iconic image that we've seen um, when we talk about the Maria Hatok riots. Uh, a large crowd quickly formed around the commotion, duh, and it was only after the much persuasion that Amina agreed to enter the car together with Maria to pay a visit to a lawyer, who explained that Maria had to be given up until the appeal was made. The duo parted in tears, with Maria returning to York Hill for temporary safekeeping. Oof. Uh, Maria stayed at York Hill for two more months, you know, uh, two more months under a further order from the Chief Justice pending approval, which was filed on 20th July. Uh, with the help of a person called M.A. Majid, then president of the Muslim Welfare Association, Amina appealed against the court order on the grounds that the necessary parties, and I'm quoting this, that the necessary parties had not been duly served with copies of the order. So this is a very technical thing, you know, this... It's legally easy. Yeah, legally easy. Yeah. And uh, that the Dutch Consul General had not been empowered by the Hub Talks to receive custody of Maria. Uh, 
Uh, the verdict was an overruling of the earlier decision. And aside from the ex-party order to hand Maria to the Social Welfare Department, uh, the appellate court found ambiguity in the Dutch Consul General's representation of Maria's natal father. I think a couple of things are coming out here, right? First of all, it's the influence of third parties on the court. You have the Dutch Consul General and you have the Muslim Welfare Association, both kind of at odds with one another. And then, of course, in the terms of the, the violence that was being enacted in the separation of Amina and Maria Hertog, there's also the sense of, of pain that's being formed in society. People are watching this and asking themselves, what's the justification for tearing up family? No one can really back down at this point in time, right? Because it's about organizations who are trying to win a case. I totally sympathize with Adeline and Adriana's, you know, the, the birth parents of Maria Hertog. But to a certain extent, I also feel like there's so much complication happening, right? And so you cannot take it as a clear cut, like, I just want my kids back. You kind of have to navigate the situation and see what's best for the kid, right? Maria herself is compelled to want to stay with Amina. She's built her home here. She's feeling like she belongs here. And so to a certain extent, that just complicates it a lot. Right. Even culturally, um, we all knew that um, Maria Hertog herself was already raised in a very Muslim environment, right? So this uh, gives, a, gives, I guess, a bit of a sympathetic note here where a person has built their life and is now trying to be pulled out of it. How, how crazy is that? This is only the beginning, right? Things are going to get a lot, lot messier. On 1st August 1950, Maria was married by way of uh, Nika Gantung, which is basically a truncated marriage to be consummated when both parties were of the age of a majority valid under Islamic law, which basically means, you know, they're married first and then later on when they are of a valid age, then they will be able to consummate it. To 21-year-old Mansur Adabi, a Kelantan-born teacher in training at the Bukit Panjang Government School. Now, the whole reason why this is controversial is because the Dutch saw this and essentially the parents saw this as a maneuver by Amina to prevent further retrieval attempts by the Hertogs as Maria returned to live with Amina after the wedding night. And the new couple never consummated the marriage. So that's another thing, right? It's like, it's basically saying like, she's married, she has to consummate the marriage when she's of age, so until then she'll stay with Amina. So they want to complicate any attempts to like get Maria back because they'll say, well, she has all these uh, obligations, she's agreed to get into marriage, you know, why are you taking her away from this? So it doesn't matter whether Amina was doing this for that reason or not. What's important is that this became a very prominent chapter in the story of Maria Hertog. So the first challenges on the appropriateness of the marriage actually came from the Muslim community itself. So on 10th August, a Muslim leader wrote to the Straits Times pointing out that although Islamic law permits the marriage of girls starting after puberty, there were Muslim countries such as Egypt that legislated for minimum marrying age. And basically, he said that it's not in the interest of the friendly understanding between Christians and Muslims to object to the marriage since it had already taken place. The latter view was held by the Muslim population at large, but in a more antagonistic mood against the Dutch and Europeans. It's basically saying, aha, we've done this. Don't try to mess with it because if you do, we're going to get angry. Right. So there was this recognition that this is not necessarily completely appropriate. But because it's already done, we don't want to create any issues. We don't want to allow, you know, a, a platform for the Dutch to be able to come in and say like, hey, 
like we want to challenge this. So rather than create all the conflict, the Muslim community said, let's stand back. Let's be okay with the marriage. For a lot of people, that was a better decision because then they could kind of put a finger in, in the Duchess' face, right? But of course, this was very short-lived because there was a second appeal in which the Hurtogs tried again. Yeah, so the Hurtogs, they, of course, you know, uh, they didn't want to give up on their legal pursuit to retrieve Maria. And like, only after a day after the marriage, Mina received the Hurtogs' representative lawyers from uh, KL. Uh, Kuala Lumpur. The lawyers delivered a letter demanding Maria's return by 10th August, failing which legal action would be taken. Believing that the marriage settled the matter, Amina and Monsoor uh, both ignored the deadline. But of course, the Hurtogs did not. They, they were already threatening in the first place. Uh, about 16 days later, on 26 August, an originating summons was taken out under the guardianship of infants' ordinance. Uh, the Hurtogs as plaintiff against Amina, Maria, and Monsoor, who were all made defendants. Uh, the hearings didn't begin until about uh, three months later, so 20th November, and for four months, the matter hung in suspense. During this time, I, I guess tensions were very high, and Maria rarely left her residence in the house of M.A. Majid, then president of the Muslim Welfare Association. This is this is important, right? Like They've already... Um, sunk their boots knee deep into the associations being their like protectors and guardians mm -hmm. she did this because in her own words she was attracting too much attention uh, nevertheless media coverage of the incident had grown to a global scale letters from Muslim organizations in Pakistan are promising financial support and other help kind of arrived and some going as far as to declare any further move by the Dutch government to separate the couple as an open challenge to the Muslim world. Uh, pledges of aid also came from Maria's native Indonesia and as far as Saudi Arabia. This is the aftermath of World War II, right? Uh, tensions are still high, everyone's still recovering, and this is a global call uh, for support. The hearing finally opened, and Maria's natural mother, uh, Adeline, traveled down to Singapore to attend. Uh, the judge, his name is Justice Brown, uh, delivered the verdict two weeks later. The marriage, instead of resolving the dispute, had instead complicated it, as we've discussed. Uh, Justice Brown had two issues on his hand, namely the legality of the marriage and the custody of Maria. He held that the marriage was invalid because Maria's country of domicile was by the law that of her native of her natal father, the Netherlands. Under the Dutch laws, the minimum age of marriage for girls was 16. The English law applicable in Singapore recognized the marriage laws of the subject's country of domicile. So since everything was done in on our soil, you know there are certain parameters that must be upheld. An exception to the above point could not be established because neither Monso, born in Kalantan, could be proved to be domiciled in Singapore, nor Maria be considered a Muslim by law. Uh, during her minority, uh, Maria's natal father, who was a Christian, had the legal right to control her religion. He had testified that he would never consent to her conversion to Islam. Having overruled the purported marriage, uh, Justice Brown went on to deal with what he described as the most difficult question of custody. He noted that his duty to the law required him to have regard primarily to the welfare of the infant. Uh, he believed this meant that he not only had to consider the current wishes of Maria, but also her future well-being. Now, he states very clearly that it is natural that we should show now wish to remain in Malaya among people whom she knows. 
but who can say that she will have the same views some years hence after her outlooks has been enlarged and her context extended in the life of the family to which she belongs. He also noted that whatever the deals of the contested initiation of the custody at the end of 1942 might be, Adrianus Hertog had not been part of it and not been abrogated his parental rights. He therefore awarded custody of Haria to the Hertogs and ordered that she should be handed over to her mother with immediate effect. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, this is this is just like watching suits, and it's a very comp- it's a very complex case. The issue here, I don't think, is just the matter of what transpired, but the fact that everyone is politicized in this case. What's really sad is that some of these laws that were used are pretty archaic laws, right? We can't really judge what happened by our current moral positions and our current values because those were the laws back then but back then essentially you know a parent had ultimate rights over the religion of a kid the kid themselves could not choose their religion right which doesn't make sense from from some angle uh the other aspect is of course the fact that you have to follow the law of country of domicile of the father right (laughs) because the father was in the netherlands they can't really follow muslim law and for context, Maria at this point in time is like, what, 13 years old, probably? She's not at that stage yet. So when we talk about uh, the context of where this is, this is still a young person uh, trying to carve out their destiny. And there are a lot of le- legal issues that surround that. You know, Justice uh, Brown himself admitted that Maria wanted to stay in Malaya, right, with people that she knows. But his assumption was, you know, who knows that she'll want to say that if she goes back to the Netherlands, right, where she'll be around family in which she belongs. And so there was, and this has been a common critique of this evaluation, there was a underlying possible racist connotation to it that, you know, that she may prefer being back in a more civilized society with her white parents, right? Um, and, and that's a very scary thought to have that basically the judge's decision was kind of built on some of these underlying possible internalized racism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We're quickly ramping up to the actual riot. When the policeman came to take Maria away, she wept and clung to Amina and Mansoor. Amina fainted on the spot and a doctor standing by had to attend to her. Mansoor, so Mansoor is the husband, by the way, if you've forgotten. Mansoor advised Maria to concede for the time being and promised that he and others would carry on the legal fight. So Maria said, sure, she allowed herself to be brought away into a car and the police, including a Gurkha contingent, held back a crowd of several hundred. The car delivered Maria to the Roman Catholic convent of the Good Shepherd, run by the Sisters of the Good Shepherd at Thompson Road. Mrs. Hertog stayed at another address for a few days from where she visited Maria daily before moving into the convent herself. According to an official of the Netherlands Consular General, such arrangement was because of greater convenience while the stay of execution pending appeal was in effect. But it proved to be the spark that lit the fuse of the subsequent riots. What happened was basically that the press was not barred from entering the convent grounds, nor were they restricted in any way in their approach to the incident, which had been nothing shy of sensational. On the 5th of December, the Singapore Tiger Standard published on its front page a photograph of Maria standing, holding hands with the Reverend Mother. There were several more pictures on page 2 of the newspaper under the headline, Bertha knelt before Virgin Mary statue. 
The Malay press retorted that Utusan Melayu published on 7 December three photographs of Maria weeping and being comforted by a nun, as well as articles about Maria's lonely and miserable life in the convent. And you can go and find these headlines and these pictures and these illustrations in the archives. Or as long as you Google it online, you can find it. And it really shows the sensationalization of this story, uh, this depiction of Maria in, in a very, very compromised, very, very unfortunate state of mind. And that definitely incited the anger of a lot of people in the community. Mothership, take notes, okay? Don't ever do this kind of thing. I will, and we'll get to the impact on our current media sensitivity, right? But basically, these pictures, whether presenting Maria as happy or sad, mostly showed Maria surrounded by symbols of Christian faith. And the Muslims who looked upon Maria as one of their own were deeply offended by such pictures, not to mention the sensational reports, some of which explicitly labeled the case as a religious issue between Islam and Christianity. On 9 December, an organization calling itself the Nadra Action Committee was formally constituted under the leadership of Karim Ghani. Now, this guy is an important central figure in the riots. Karim Ghani is a Muslim political activist from Rangoon, right? Uh, Rangoon, of course, now in Myanmar. The committee solicited support among local Muslims by distributing free copies of the newspaper, which is called The Dawn. Karim Ghani had also made an open speech at the Sultan Mosque on 8 December, in which he mentioned jihad as a final result. Karim also worked with other Malay newspapers, such as Malayu Rayu, to portray Maria's case as a religious issue between Islam and Christianity. However, the newspapers, including Dawn, called for restraint and advised Muslims not to gather outside the Supreme Court during the hearing. These calls were ignored by demonstrators on the day of the hearing, and essentially, there was a lot of fear about Muslim anger, to the point where the Criminal Investigation Department sent a memo to the colonel secretary suggesting moving Maria back to York Hill rather than keeping her in the convent. The secretary did not agree on grounds that he had received no such representation from Muslim leaders, nor did he have the authority to remove Maria without court orders themselves. So essentially, there is this whole you know, a retrospective argument that actually had they moved Maria, had they removed her from the common from, you know, this surrounding of Christian images and motives, maybe the Muslims would have been calmed down. They would have said, okay, she's in a more neutral location. But because they didn't do that, that is where the aggravation started. This is where things start to uh, take the sharpest downturn, where the appeal hearing opened on like 11th of December. Maria, who still stayed at the convent, she did not attend the hearing. And since early morning, crowds carrying banners and flags with star and crescent symbols began to gather around the Supreme Court. By noon, when the hearing eventually began, uh, the restive crowd had grown to about two to maybe 3,000 in number. That's a, that's a huge number. Uh, the court threw out the appeal within five minutes, and the brevity of the hearing convinced the gathering that the colonial legal system was biased against Muslims. This is when the riots erupted. The riots continued for three days, and a curfew was imposed for two weeks. Uh, the mob, obviously largely consisting of the Muslims who had gathered, uh, moved out to attack any Europeans and even Eurasians in sight. There was overturning of cars, burning them down. Uh, the police force, its lower ranks largely consisted of Malays who had sympathized with the rioters' cause, were ineffective in quelling the riots. And by nightfall, the riots had spread to even more remote parts of the island. Uh, they needed help from the British military, and uh, who were only in 
enlisted only at around like 6.45 p.m. Major General Dunlop promptly deployed two internal security battalions, uh, which calling in further reinforcements from Malaya. Meanwhile, various Muslim leaders appealed over the radio for the riots to cease. The military, so comprising of three battalions of Malay infantrymen under the command of uh, Major General Dunlop, was called in after dark on the 11th of December uh, to assist the police. The following day, they were given orders to open fire to restore law and order, resulting in more casualties as seven people were reportedly shot. Machine guns were deployed to protect areas with significant European or Eurasian populations and churches, and the causeway was sealed off by army troops to prevent cult and triad members and militants entering Singapore from Malaysia. Or Malaya, I guess, at a point in time. Uh, the divisive riots also seriously affected the morale of Malay and Muslim police officers who were disenchanted by colonial laws governing Muslims in Singapore and having to arrest Muslim rioters. Many refused to comply with the orders of their European officers as they as they would have definitely. That's like the popular sentiment back then. Uh, some left the official duties while others were themselves involved in episodes of violence. So the, the police basically, some of them joined in. The troops and police only managed to regain control of the situation by noon, two days later, on the 13th of December. In total, 18 people were killed, among whom were seven Europeans or Eurasians, two police officers, and nine rioters shot by the police or military. We had 173 injured, and many of them were, were very serious. 119 vehicles were reported to be damaged, and at least two buildings were set on fire. Subsequently, two weeks of 24-hour curfews were imposed, um, and it was a long time before complete law and order was re-established. Now, after the riot, the police set up a special investigation unit, as we normally do, which detained 778 people, among them Karim Ghani, uh, the guy who also was at the, the forefront of, of um, these events. Out of these, 403 were released unconditionally. 106 were released on various conditions because uh, they generally had to report the police station monthly and adhere to curfew after dark. Uh, the police eventually brought rioting charges against 200 people, of whom 25 were acquitted, 100 convicted, 62 were referred to the Enquiry Advisory Committee, and 7 were brought to trial at the SEs court for wanton killing and five of them were subsequently sentenced to death on the gallows. One of the five that was sentenced to the gallows was AKS Othman Ghani, a respectable Indian businessman from Madras, the founder of the once famous Jubilee Cafe and Restaurant. Now, um, all this is really just to show you the extent of the damage uh, over three days. This Remember, this is three days, dude, of, of intense rioting. Most of the time, we have the police on the nation's side, even throughout our time in independent Singapore. Uh, under the colonial rule, this is, by and large, a failure on the, on the police side to gain control of the situation because of how deeply ingrained the problem was uh, within the general population. So, and I think this is a good place to talk about something that I strongly believe in, right? So one of the aftermath of this was the reflection that we need to be very sensitive about how we portray race in the media, about how we portray religion in the media, how we deal with tension between religious groups, right? And I think that's an important lesson. And I fully support that that sensitivity. But I think what's important here that wasn't talked about was about representation, 
work, right? Yes. And the reason for that is because when you're in a community and you feel like the powers that be are basically from a vastly different community. And in fact, when there is antagonism, you feel like that community has somewhat of an advantage, right? Because they are controlling the courts, they are controlling uh, those in power, they are controlling even uh, who's in charge of the police, right? That level of the lack of diversity will actually always set you up for tensions that cannot be resolved. But if you have leaders, if, for example, you had Muslim leaders in the courts, you had Muslim leaders in the police, that doesn't just apply to, to, to Muslim leaders, but to all kinds of uh, representative groups that have a significant uh, population in, in a country or in a place, then you would be able to actually leverage that to say, hey, there's consensus this person has leaned in uh, his or her views, and we've respected that, taking in all those diverse perspectives, that this is the best decision moving forward. I think there'll be a lot more acceptance from the community and from society. So it's not just about controlling the media, but it's controlling even who has power in some of our societies. In 1951, a commission of inquiry was set up to investigate the riots, its causes, and governmental measures to restore law and order. The commission was comprised of Sir Lionel Leach, a member of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, British Chief Constable Captain H. Study, and J. H. Wenham of the Surrey County Council. Now, again, when we talk about representation, notice how diverse this group is. Between 14 February and 9 March, the commission interviewed colonial officials, police officers, members of the public, and Muslim community leaders, although notably then-Governor of Singapore Sir Franklin Gimson was not questioned under oath due to British legal principle. The Commission of Inquiry revealed rifts between police officers such as RCB Wilshire, the former acting commissioner of the police, and colonial administrators including Gimson and Colonel Secretary Wilfred Blythe, as well as the authors of the report over certain conclusions and their portion of blame for the riots. The Commission's report published on 7th August 1951 stated that the riots had occurred largely due to the anger of the Muslim community over the verdict and Maria's stay at the Roman Catholic convent, inciting element of sensational press coverage, as well as the radical statements of the Nadra Action Committee. This was the one that was led by Kareem. Indeed, when the Supreme Court announced its earlier verdict on the 2nd December 1950, the Muslim community had actually not created any disorder. There was a lot of people, but there was no disorder. But the situation was completely different on 11 December 1950 because, you know, of a couple of new factors, including press photographs, articles about Maria's life in the convent, and the violent campaign of misrepresentation. Those are quotes conducted by the Nadra Action Committee. The commission also spelled out a number of police shortcomings that later resulted in changes in the police force. This includes the establishment of multiracial reserve units and the development of a more efficient policing system, including control headquarters, uh, that were backed by a team of 40 radio patrol cars. And this is talking about, you know, quick deployment and making sure that groups were, you know, diverse enough where if, you know, one racial group or one religious group decided that they could not participate or they didn't want to participate, that didn't affect the effectiveness of the police. So six senior police officers, including Wilshire and K.L. Johnson, were charged with negligence in their duties and other offenses, including perjury before the commission and manipulation of evidence. Now, these charges were later dropped, at Milf, but Wilshire and Johnson were forced into retirement with full pensions. And this is where, again, we talk about 
you know, bias and racism, right? Because the commission's court has been criticized by later writers for maintaining the legitimacy of the colonial administration and its failure to examine socioeconomic causes, including the disillusionment and unhappiness of the Muslim community. It's very much a blame this community for getting angry and for reacting rather than looking at some of the endemic factors that actually led to this. And we've done episodes about riots and about violence before. And basically the point has been consistent, right? These people have to be held according to the law for some of the, the violence and damage that they've done. And that's part of being in a legal system. But the response from society on a wider level cannot just be punitive. It has to be rehabilitative. And that means going past just the judgments that were passed and looking at actually what were the underlying factors and how can we prevent future issues by looking at how do we bring more people into the fold? How do we make more people feel included rather than make them feel excluded and get to this point of violence altogether? In wider context, the riots received prominent and mostly negative media coverage in Singapore, the UK, and countries with significant Muslim populations, prompting fears that the UK's diplomatic relations with countries such as Indonesia and Pakistan would be affected. The violence also diminished British prestige and imperial legitimacy and showed Muslims in Malaya that Islam could be used as an ideological platform for communal unity and resistance to colonial rule. On 25th August 1951, Tunku Abdul Rahman, who would later become the first Prime Minister of Malaysia, took over as the president of UMNO, a Malay-centric party, and he went to save the five people on death row uh, that you know were, were from the criminal investigation. Abdul Rahman placed pressure on authorities who finally gave in. The reason for this was because the British government expected their role as colonial masters to end soon and they didn't want to leave grim memories. So basically they said, sure, we'll commute the death sentence for all of these five people and it'll just be a life imprisonment. Now, what's also super interesting, right, um, is that in this... In this research paper, it's called Rethinking Riots in Colonial Southeast Asia, the case of the Maria Hertog controversy in Singapore. Associate Professor Kairuddin Aljunit explains how the riots led to a heightened political consciousness and social activism in a neighboring region of Southeast Asia, with local newspapers helping to perpetuate the feeling of British colonial discrimination towards Islam and Muslims. Conversely, animosity towards colonial rule was less substantial in the wider Arab world presumably because the Arab leaders chose not to express their views regarding the riot. In Europe, the Dutch government urged the media not to aggravate the situation and cautioned against excessive celebrations upon the Hertog's imminent arrival at the airport and the British employed strategies to maintain order following the riots. They did this by obtaining intelligence on activities and Malayan political groups that promoted independence in the wake of the riots and also through a propaganda-driven public display of respect for the Muslim community. So there was a lot of like, you know, different ways that people reacted to this. It could be said that the Maria Hertog riots also kind of accelerated the idea of Malayan community, Malayan unity, and the need to push back against colonial powers. Uh, there was also a realization within the Dutch and the English that, hey, we have to be a lot more sensitive because if not, you know, we're in these places, they're in Indonesia, they're in Singapore, they're in parts of Malaysia, and they can't just, you know, do whatever they want. There is there's real repercussions on the people. And so that's uh there's a lot of after effects from, from this riot. And that's kind of where a lot of the social studies lessons stop, right? Because, you know, they've made their point. Be sensitive to religious issues, uh, be conscious of maybe some of the 
colonial influences on people uh, back in the day and how we need a how how Malayan unity was kind of formed as a result of it. Um, but actually, one of the questions that remain answered is what happened to Maria after that, right? Like, where did she go? Uh, and and I, I realized that as I was doing this research, I never knew, right? But we have found the information. This comes from, so this, the, this part of the podcast actually comes from Masha News. Uh, they did a great report that I was able to, borrow a lot of information from. During the upheaval, when Maria and Ellen departed for the Netherlands um, on 12th December, um, they went back to the Hertog's home in Bergen or Zoom's outskirts, right? Um, they took this KLM plane and landed two hours later than expected. There's this very tired Maria who trailed sadly behind her mother as they got off the plane. With tears welling up in her eyes, she heard several voices calling her name, some shouting Bertha, others Nadra, and these people from the Bertha Hatok com- Committee, a committee set up to provide the best legal representation and funds for expenses incurred by the Hatoks. Uh, like there were banners with words, welcome Nadra, welcome back Bertha, as she was greeted at the airport. And she symbolized to them victory, power, joy, and success for the nation that suffered a defeat in the war. Maria only felt that these people were reveling in her pain. And I think this is a quote directly from her as she voiced her thoughts about that day. My father greeted both of us. I saw many photographers, reporters, and other people at the airport. However, I didn't care about that at all. I was too preoccupied with what I was going through. We were brought to the press conference room. I was too angry and upset. I didn't speak to anybody. Not long after that, we were taken by car to where my mother lived, led by police outriders in front and several cars behind. At that time, I felt like a hero coming back from the war. That's her quote. Uh, Nonetheless, you know, uh, what Maria did was that she obeyed Adeline's wishes and picked up Dutch uh, from a nun who came to her house daily until she was proficient enough to attend a convent school. Uh, once again, a convent. Uh, whenever Maria left the house, she was escorted by policemen in plain clothes out of fear that kidnappers would take her back to Singapore. Uh, she did an interview with Netherlands Daily De Telegraph nine years later and revealed that um, she felt like a prisoner physically and mentally. However, she slowly adjusted to life there, attending Sunday Mass with her family. Uh, she gradually learned to communicate with her family and shared a room with her two older sisters. And now in school, she did well at the primary stage and went on to another school to learn professional dressmaking. Uh, in 1955, this is about a good five years uh, after the fact, Maria announced her engagement to a 21-year-old Dutch Catholic, Johan Gerardus Wolkenfeld. Uh, who was doing his military service. They met during a party for new call-up men. At the engagement party, Maria and Johan exchanged rings in the presence of her siblings, parents, and Johan's mom. Uh, they attained sorry, a special consent from the magistrate to get married, bypassing her parents who felt that she was too young to get married. So once again, this is this is Maria uh, you know, asserting her own her own desires. Another year later, April 20th, 1956, the pair got married by a Catholic priest, with Maria's eldest brother being the only member of the Hertog family present. On 15th February, 1957, Maria gave birth to her first son. She had more children over the next 15 years, totaling to 13 kids, with three not surviving their infancy, leaving four girls and six boys. Uh, Maria also told the Telegraph that she often had rows with her mother who lived nearby. The papers stated that she yearned for her Malayan homeland and Maria's first and second husbands, uh, Monso and Johan, started to correspond 
both wishing for Maria to travel to Malaya to call on the aged Amina. The trip never materialized due to financial concerns, uh, and Amina passed in 1976. This is the second marriage that we're going to talk about, and generally speaking, not to me, doesn't seem like the best life after um, the trauma of the trial. Mansur and Johan were talking to one another, right? Because in some ways, I think Johan, and, and I'm, I'm, we're reading into what we can find, um, was in, in his effort to make Maria happy, was trying to connect Maria and Amina back again. And that even meant that he was comfortable enough to talk to her first husband. So that's, that's a big deal, I, I would say. The year before, there's this television program titled The Time Just Stood Still. Uh, it was a retelling of Maria's story. In this show, it showed flashbacks of her life through old newsreels with comparisons to life in Holland with another husband and children. It was partly filmed in Singapore with interviews with Monceau, who avoided mentioning the past, although the fond memories were still vivid in his mind. It also depicted a happy Monceau in a well-off family with his wife. The documentary deeply affected Maria adversely, who compared her miserable life with Monceau. A 38-year-old Maria also appeared in the program but did not say much. The production had lasting effects on Maria. 16 August 1976, Maria was put on trial in a Dutch court for allegedly plotting to murder her husband. Uh, during the trial, she confessed that she started to have thoughts about killing her husband after the television program. Uh, basically, she wanted to leave him, but was afraid that divorce proceedings would lead her uh, to losing custody of her children. While working at her husband's cafe, Kamba, uh, she came into contact with two regular customers. However, police got wind of the murder as the last accomplice chickened out and gossiped about the plan. All four of them were arrested. In her defense, uh, Maria's lawyer emphasized on her background, which the court acknowledged. Uh, trauma is definitely a big player in this uh, entire uh, proceeding. Maria was acquitted after a one-day hearing since the plot was never carried out and there was no evidence that she had offered any inducements to the other three. Later that year, a Malaysian newspaper reported that Maria suffered from a mental breakdown, which her children denied. So far, uh, we're starting to see the ripples right, of growing up as a child in such a high-profile case. And again, all that emotional and mental trauma that was carried forward right and people don't realize the Im implication so in 1979 maria married her next husband a regular patron at the cafe tom Bollermans, who was one of the conspirators that maria had worked with to plot her second husband's murder four years later this couple also filed for divorce maria moved to nevada to start anew with an indonesian who became an american citizen ben pitchell she took up residence in Nevada, leaving her children behind in Holland, and she took on jobs as a cook, a hotel maid, and as a cleaner. It was said that Maria missed her children who were far away from her. Maria and Ben visited Kamaman, subsequently paying a visit to her elder adopted sister, Kamaria, a Japanese girl that Amina had also adopted earlier. The visit was highly emotional. It was the first time after a long separation of 48 years, but also the last for Kamaria later died of leukemia. Around 2001 to 2003, Maria left Ben, her fourth husband at this point, or, or rather her fourth partner at this point. She settled down into a house in Huibergen, near Bergen of Zoom, near the homes of her two of her daughters. And on 8 July 2009, 72-year-old Maria passed away in a house due to leukemia with her 10 children surrounding her. Maria's will stated that instead of a burial, 
She wanted her body to be left for medical research with the belief that her body could be used to help others with leukemia. So in some ways, she ended her life, you know, giving back to society. But the fact that she went through four partners, the fact that she lived without being able to see Amina again, the fact that, you know, she had such a, a severe, you know, mental episode that she almost thought of killing her husband. These are, <laughs> these are very, very tragic points that people don't talk about when they talk about the riots. People don't talk about when they talk about the Maria Hurtock story. But it... It's a human story, the human narrative underpinning a lot of this that we forget. And the moment we learn about it, it shapes so much more of our understanding of actually what happened. I definitely think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this, um, especially for the case that things that children go go through and uh, how it can affect us in the later part of the years. This is, a, this is a tragedy if I ever saw one. There's a lot of great books and a lot of resources about the Maria Hurtock story. As much as we've given a pretty long version, of the story it's also an abridged version of the actual story what's your reflections on all of this like how has that changed your view of singapore and where we're at right now then in terms of racial sensitivities and religious sensitivities at that um we started off in a very dark place right this is pre remember this is pre-independence so where we are at today i think we've learned a lot uh, from this one particular incident because you know there was a lot of loss involved at at the core of who we are as Singapore, I think it's important, you know, we talk about current day media sensitivities. I think it's important that when parties, third parties start to involve themselves uh, with cases which do have racial and religious implications, that we be sensitive, that we be prudent, and that we be as objective as we can be without trying to uh, stir the pot too much. You know, remember the human stories that underpin all of this. Remember that real people are being affected. It's not just a topic about, you know, big ideas and rhetoric. There are people whose lives are at stake. Uh, and secondly, you know, the best way to prevent a lot of these things is not just to be hypersensitive and hypertolerant, but to, to really do service to the various groups that we have in society and fight for representation, fight for diversity in the places where powers are so that ultimate decisions are based on consensus and compromise rather than any kind of perception that there is a corruption or bias in power. Right. And and I think those are those are my takeaways from this. That's a that's that's a good one. So on that somber note, hope this uh, episode has been useful and educational for everyone who's been curious about what it means to be a Singaporean. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been.